Welcome to the Tech Meme Right Home for Monday, February 22nd, 2021. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Spotify's new hi-fi subscription tier. Clubhouse has security concerns. Apple is king of the smartphone hill once again. Maybe the biggest survival story of the COVID-19 era is about to IPO. And is the Facebook news ban pushing Australians into the arms of the news publishers themselves? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. As I'm recording this, Spotify has just wrapped up its Spotify Stream On event, in which it announced a bunch of stuff, including new tools for creators, new monetizing options, even an ad marketplace for podcasts, which might be too in the weeds for our purposes, although I reserve the right to reassess that later. What is probably more interesting for normal consumers, for us at the moment, is the fact that Spotify is launching a new subscription product later this year called Hi-Fi that will offer CD-quality lossless audio, quoting The Verge. Spotify has done small tests of higher-quality streaming in the past, but now it's going to launch the feature more widely, with the caveat that it'll be available only in select markets. And pricing is yet to be announced. Higher-quality streaming has apparently been among the top requests from its customers. As it stands today, Spotify tops out at 320 kbps audio. Amazon rolled out Amazon Music HD in 2019. The lossless plan costs $14.99 per month, or $12.99 per month for Prime customers, a premium over the standard Amazon Music Unlimited service. Title which has supported high-resolution audio since its very beginning, is priced slightly higher at $19.99 per month for the Hi-Fi plan. Tidal offers what it calls Tidal Masters that go up to high-resolution 96 kilohertz 24-bit audio. Smaller services like Kubas have also sought to appeal to audiophiles with lossless streaming. Apple Music, on the other hand, still lacks any kind of lossless streaming tier, despite Apple selling the very high-end AirPods Max headphones, end quote which you have to figure might be about to become an untenable situation. Clubhouse has announced that it has added security safeguards and banned a user after some Clubhouse audio and metadata from Clubhouse Rooms was found on a third-party website, quoting Bloomberg. An unidentified user was able to stream Clubhouse audio feeds this weekend from multiple rooms into their own third-party website, said Rima Banase, a spokesman for Clubhouse. While the company says it's permanently banned that particular user and installed new safeguards to prevent a repeat, researchers contend the platform may not be in a position to make such promises. Users of the invitation-only iOS app should assume all conversations are being recorded. The Stanford Internet Observatory, which was first to publicly raise security concerns on February 13th, said late Sunday, quote, Clubhouse cannot provide any privacy promises for conversations held anywhere around the world, said Alex Stamos, director of the SIO and Facebook's former security chief. Stamos and his team were also able to confirm that Clubhouse relies on a Shanghai-based startup called Agora to handle much of its back-end operations. While Clubhouse is responsible for its user experience, like adding new friends and finding rooms, the platform relies on the Chinese company to provide its data traffic and audio production, he said. Clubhouse's dependence on Agora raises extensive privacy concerns, especially for Chinese citizens and dissidents under the impression their conversations are beyond the reach of state surveillance, Stamos said, end quote. 
In a statement to The Verge, Agora said it, quote, does not have access to, share, or store personally identifiable end-user data, and that it does not route, quote, voice or video traffic from non-China-based users through China, end quote. As for this particular hack, I have been told by a researcher I trust that at least as of recently, you could use Clubhouse's backend to directly siphon audio out of any Clubhouse room and record it. I believe Clubhouse has been aware of the situation, but as Dar Arbasanjo tweeted, quote, there is a mistaken assumption by some people that Clubhouse audio can't be recorded. It's just an app with an internal API. Anyone can reverse engineer it and interact with the service with their own client. And even if not, Ted Cruz's group chats leaked. Any participant can leak, end quote. Yes, that's a lesson for all of us on Clubhouse. Anyone that's in the room where it happens can potentially talk about what happened when they leave the room. We've been doing a lot of numbers watches recently, and I couldn't avoid doing this one as well. Gartner is reporting that in Q4 of 2020, Apple sold 80 million new iPhones globally, thereby allowing Apple to overtake Samsung as the world's number one smartphone vendor, a crown that Apple has not been able to claim since 2016. Quoting Mac Rumors, Compared to 2019, Apple sold more than 10 million extra iPhones in the fourth quarter and saw its global smartphone market share increase by almost 15%. Samsung, the closest rival to Apple, saw its market share decrease by 11.8% and sold around 8 million fewer devices compared to just one year ago, according to the market data. Apple's near 15% increase in market share yielded it an upgrade supercycle, according to Annette Zimmerman, the lead analyst for Apple at Gartner, quoted by the Financial Times. In Q1 of 2021, Apple saw its largest number of iPhone upgrades ever, according to CEO Tim Cook. The iPhone alone generated more than $65 billion in revenue for the first quarter of the year. For the greater picture, however, global smartphone sales decreased by 12.5% in 2020. Out of the top five smartphone makers, Apple and Xiaomi were the only two unscathed by the global decline in sales. Apple's growth comes despite the fact that it launched its iPhone 12 series out of the normal September timeframe due to the global health crisis, end quote. Speaking of our pandemic year, I've got an IPO rumor that will allow us to do some interesting reflection on succeeding in COVID times. Toast is a cloud-based restaurant management software provider, and according to the Wall Street Journal, it is planning an IPO that could value it at around $20 billion. Now, back in February of last year, right before COVID went worldwide, Toast was valued at $4.9 billion. Quote, in going public, Toast, a 10-year-old company whose valuation has leapt several fold in the past year, would join a red-hot IPO market fueled lately by the high-profile debuts of companies including Affirm and Bumble. Shares of both are trading far above their IPO prices, as are those of 2020 predecessors including Airbnb and DoorDash. Founded in 2011 by Aman Narang, John Grimm, and Steve Fredit, Toast provides payment processing hardware and cloud-based software for restaurants. Aside from core point-of-sale offerings, its products include payroll processing and email marketing, and it also lends to restaurants through Toast Capital. Competitors include Square and PayPal. Toast's business 
initially took an extreme hit from the pandemic and associated lockdowns. In an April blog post, Toast Chief Executive Chris Comparado said it planned to reduce staff by roughly 50%, citing a drop in revenue of more than 80% in March in most cities. By mid-year, however, Toast's business started to rebound with new demand for its software as restaurants transitioned to takeout services and other offerings amid lockdown restrictions, end quote. So the point I want to make is this. When I say, as I've done many times recently, that anyone remotely close to plausibly being able to hit public markets is going to try to do so right now, this is what I mean. I cannot possibly think of an industry harder hit this year than restaurants, maybe the cruise industry. So the fact that Toast serving those restaurants could possibly 4x its valuation in just a year, and in this year of all years, is just incredible. Now, it does sound like Toast was able to pivot successfully to help restaurants when they needed to pivot themselves to takeout, but also I think this reflects number one, just what I said, that investors are starving for any tech IPOs right now, so get while the getting is good, but also two, SaaS. Are you tired of hearing about SaaS? That is all anyone can talk about right now. Now that we've been collecting the interesting raises in a scientific way, I can tell you that like half of the interesting raises lately have been SaaS plays for different industries or different competencies. Like I could do a whole episode and do nothing but tell you about enterprise SaaS raises. So much so that some startups have been popping up to help companies manage their dozens of SaaS subscriptions and platforms all in one dashboard. Love, love, love Yahoo Finance. Use it every day to research companies we talk about on the show. Heck, I used it constantly when I was writing the book to look at the historical performance of dot-com companies. But when I'm working on my own portfolio, it's also the autocomplete in my browser, yahoofinance.com. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. And when you use it for your personal investing tool, like I do, you can securely link your brokerage accounts to it for a unified view of of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all, you've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. Think of it as an observability dashboard, but for your finances. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. I'm going to a big AI startup demo day here in the city tomorrow, and I will 100% be decked out in Mack Weldon clothing. Why? Well, Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. That's their air underwear. 
crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants, the Ace Collection, an upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads, the Silver Peak Polo, that's my personal fave, and ultra-soft antimicrobial tees for when you need to stay fresh longer, their Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code RIDE. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code RIDE. I need to do a catch-up story now on something that has been rolling on for months at this point. When it first surfaced, it was one of those things that I figured was just a one-off, and then it became this whole big thing, and now we've missed it, so here's a catch-up. Back in December, Team Nick Gabriel was fired as the co-leader of ethical AI at Google. The reasons behind the firing have been controversial and much debated. Was it because Gabriel authored a paper that was underlying the risks of large language AI models, models which Google leans on itself for its AI research? I.e., was she fired for being too critical of Google's own practices, or was she fired for some of the cultural reasons that others have alleged go on inside of Google in recent years? Quoting Gabriel herself in an interview with VentureBeat, They paint me as this angry black woman because they put you in this terrible workplace, and if you speak up about it, then you become a problem, and then they start talking about de-escalation strategies. You write emails, they get ignored. You write documents, and they get ignored. Then you discuss how it's being done, and then they talk about you as if you're some angry black woman who needs to be contained, end quote. So whatever the truth here, more than 1,200 Google employees and 1,500 AI leaders in academia and industry signed a petition condemning the termination of Gabriel. And now, over the weekend... Margaret Mitchell, the other co-lead of Google's ethical AI team, said she had been fired, quoting Axios. Mitchell has been locked out of the corporate email since last month after what a source says was her effort to search corporate correspondence for evidence to back up Gabriel's claim of discrimination and harassment. Mitchell also posted a tweet critical of Google's handling of Gabriel and a subsequent meeting between CEO Sundar Pichai and historically black college and university leaders. Quote, say you have a problem with consistently alienating black women and have caused serious damage in their lives, you could A try to undo that damage, or B, try to find more black people to like you, the tokenism approach. Good luck, end quote. That was Mitchell in a July Twitter post. Google, in a statement to Axios, said, quote, after conducting a review of this manager's conduct, we confirmed that there were multiple violations of our code of conduct, as well as our security policies, which included the exfiltration of confidential business-sensitive documents and private data of other employees, end quote. Now, what is even more bizarre is that that all went down the same day that Google's AI head, Jeff Dean, had apologized in an email about how the Timnit Gebru situation was handled, saying his team should have managed the situation, quote, with more sensitivity, end quote. So, wow. As Jason Snell tweeted, quote, That feeling when your Friday afternoon news dump non-apology about your previous messed up AI ethics firing gets in the way of your Friday afternoon news dump about your latest messed up AI ethics firing, end quote. And as Daisuke Wakabayashi tweeted, quote, I really can't think of how Google could have handled this thing worse. They've let it drag on for weeks with a drip, drip, drip of ugly headlines. In the end, they've gutted the leadership of their AI ethics team, which is, to put it generously, worrying, end quote. 
Finally today, a bounce back from that whole Australian law controversy from last week. According to App Annie, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's news app was briefly the most downloaded app on the Australian App Store after Facebook's news ban announcement, quoting The Verge. Facebook's ban dramatically shrunk the audience for some Australian news outlets, sending traffic down 93% the day after the ban was put in place, according to Neiman Lab. But ABC News responded by adding a banner to its homepage that said, Missing our news on Facebook? Get the latest news and live notifications with the ABC News app. Since then, the app has risen from the high 400s to its current spot at number two. Whatever the reason, readers heading directly to news sources over the social media sites that cannibalize them seems like a positive, and other news organizations could potentially take advantage of the ban in similar ways. It's an unintended effect of Facebook's hardline approach compared to its competitor Google, which struck a partnership deal with three of Australia's largest media companies, Seven West Media, Nine Entertainment, and News Corp, for its news showcase, end quote. Again, Remember when this all started and Google said it might shut down in Australia completely, and then Microsoft said, no worries, we've got Bing, Bing is here, ready and willing to take up the slack. I said at the time that I wanted both sides to just do it, just call each other's bluffs, because I figured this would be like running a real-world, full-on controlled experiment. Do the big platforms have unfair moats and people would be just as fine in a world with only Bing? Would this prove the ways that incumbents do or do not have an unfair competitive advantage in tech? So yeah, maybe we've got a similar real-world experiment running here. Has social media intermediated the relationship between news producers and their consumers? Yes or no? Why or why not? And to what degree? Like so many of the things that we argue about with these tech oligarchs, we could get some definitive data from this on this Australian example, maybe. Hey, everybody. Chris and I will be doing a clubhouse room once again tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Just search for a room called Tech Meme Experience. We'll be talking about some of the news you just heard on this very episode. So please, please come in the room and raise your hands and ask some questions. We want to bring some of you on stage. So don't be shy, people. We also hope to talk about Dispo and non-fungible tokens. So yeah, fun stuff. Join us. Talk to you tonight, hopefully, and definitely tomorrow.